Welcome back, everybody. Another episode of Bootstrap Web. The streak continues, Brian. How are we doing? Yes. Yeah, streak continues. Uh, you know, we're, we're doing good. I'm, I'm liking this. It's fun, but man, it is hard. We, we're struggling to come up with things to talk about because it's like we only talked a, a week ago. But but at the same time, we just get to a point where we're just like, all right, let's just hit record. We'll figure out something to ramble about. Well, because well, there's there's an infinite amount of stuff to t- actually talk about, but maybe from a, co- from a cold start point of view. I have a few things this week that are just at the ready just because they're top of mind, top of the to-do list. I just got back from LA. So it's all very fresh. Hell yeah. I'm pretty psyched. Two days from now, I'm heading out to Colorado, one of my favorite places in the world just to be. I, I love that state. For Big Snow, Tiny Comp West. And of course, today I, I'm picking up a cold, you know, two days before my, my trip. So hopefully this isn't going to be like a, a super spreader event. But <laughs> Oh, that's fun. <laughs> I mean, you know, that's always fun. It's sort of like round two of my mastermind meetup snowboarding trip. And this group is the one that's been consistently the same group for years. Yeah, yeah. There's some overlap in the two groups, but yeah, this one is more like a master. They're both like masterminds, but this one's like the same group for the last 10 years. This same group does a fall trip. So we hung out only, what, three or four months ago in person and we're in a slack. So it's like, we're sort of just like picking up where we left off, you know? Yeah. Right. There isn't that much background that needs to happen. Everyone knows what's going on. Yeah. Yep. That's nice. Yep. I mean, in terms of topics, like uh, at some point, may- maybe today, maybe not, but like at some point, maybe I can talk about these tiny comps because I feel like Brad Tunar and Dave Rodenbach and I have, you know, we're going on like nine years of these things and we've figured out how to really run a pretty good event. So maybe I could talk about that at some point. If, if That's cool. Maybe if I actually enjoyed skiing. I, I would have gone with you the last <laughs> 10 years, but I don't. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I just took a trip of my own, just got back from LA last night. Yeah, let's hear about that. There's an e-commerce event there uh, put on by a company called Retail Summits. And they they do this all over the country, also international. And they've done a great job of putting together merchants and vendors and software and just the ecosystem around e-commerce, but not focus on Shopify. And that's kind of rare in the e-com world. And it's also not very enterprise. So it's kind of just right for us. So we started sponsoring these events. I went, I, I moderated a panel. It was nice to kind of be back on stage and feel that like nervousness and pressure. That was good. And about how many people are, are in the uh, event? 150, something like nice. that, which is kind of like, that's yeah, a it's good great. Size. That's like great a sweet size. spot. Yep. Yeah. And Sam was there from our team and Jessica, our VP of product. So it was also great to see them. We got to go out to David Chang's uh, major domo, which I've been meaning to go to for years. So we got a chance to hang a little bit and have dinner and talk. It was great. It's kind of like one of these things where you don't really know what the ROI is gonna be, if there is gonna be an ROI, but it's still good. So we did meet with a merchant and that might work out. And we met with some partners and we kind of reconnected with someone that used to work at Rally, but now works at a different agency that their like specialty is is helping merchants migrate off Shopify. So all of a sudden we're like, hey, we should do business together. So it was one of my, in terms of that, that ROI question, just judging from a little bit of my personal experience, but more from hearing from friends who are heavy into conference going as like a marketing channel for them. My sense is that it's less about how can you get X number of customers from these events? It's probably more about the partners, you know, like, like partner relationships, you know, you might pick off a few customers from going to one of these events, but if you meet three 
new partners who turn into relationships that drive hundreds of new customers over the next year or two. That's where these these events it's it's a little bit hard to track, but like it's more about these relationships. And and I mean that's been my my experience too. Yeah, I totally agree. And and I think it's even it's worse. There's like a double negative like effect if you go looking for customers and for ROI, you almost give off like the thirsty vibe which like repels. So really just going with an open mind to meet people, it's almost like a lazy approach to it, but it actually ends up being more effective because you're yourself and then you get to know people and then all of a sudden you make friends and that's, that's where the partnership turns in to ROI later on, you know, when you, when you kind of aren't asking for it directly. Do you, so, I mean, I know you're only a day out of, of this event, but like, is this something you would purchase a sponsorship for again? Yeah, so so we purchased an annual sponsorship for five events. So I'm looking at it from that point of view. I'm saying, okay, here's how much the sponsorship costs. Here's how much on average each trip will cost between airplane and hotels. And therefore, we've made this lump investment for the year. And then when I do think ROI, I basically look at that and I say, okay, three or four customers come out of that and we're good type of a thing. So it's like once the check's written I think less about ROI and I think more about let's get out there, let's go meet people, let's send people from our team to go meet people and learn and get to know and just- Yeah, just and there's like other benefits too other than direct customers, right? It's, it's your team getting together, it's your team talking to customers, it's, it's getting out there, you know? Yes, and the team getting together, there's, you know, it's just so much fun. So yeah. having like a two hour great Any excuse together. to get on a flight yes, and go, go hang out. I got back just in time to take the family to the Michigan Northwestern basketball game. So got to go with the kids to go to like a, you know, college basketball game. It was fun. What's going on on your end? Awesome. Um, yeah, this week we shipped workflows in ZipMessage, which was a, a big one. It was a big one from a number of points. So it was just a big thing to build. We, we've been building this for over two months. It's basically what workflows are, are like, you can you can build these automation workflows, right? Like picture a, a step-by-step sequence of events that happen. And you can not only like drip content out, you can do that. Like let's say you want to automatically post a message into a conversation thread once a week. Like you could schedule that out and, and have, have that cadence built out, but you can trigger messages. So like when someone has viewed my message, then trigger the next one. Or when someone has posted a reply to my message, trigger the next one, right? So so you can use these workflows to do things like a simple use case is, and I created these like recipes, tutorials on, you know, this is a really complex feature. So I had to really document exactly how it all works. And then I documented some recipe, like tutorial stuff for, for this. It's so like a simple one is you send a message out to a client and you need that client to send you back their feedback or their response within three days. So you can then queue up an email notification to send to them three days from now to like nudge them to reply, but you can build in a rule that says if they do reply before then, then don't send it, you know, just cancel that workflow. You can get a little bit more complex and then build out like an interactive course, right? So you can do things like show them lesson one, which you pre-recorded as a template, lesson one. When they view lesson one, then show them lesson two. When they view that, show them lesson three. And similar concept with like a an interview format or like a a workshop where it's like question one, and then you need to wait for them to post their response and then show them 
question two and then question three. And if you want, you can build in like delay times in between these things. So as you can tell, like it's a really complex thing for us to build, but it's all done. I think it came out really, really well. We did a ton of testing on it. I think it's a really significant feature because it's one of the first big steps that we're taking beyond just a messaging app. And now, now you can literally do much more important, powerful things with it. Like I was just saying, like an interactive course, which is something that a lot of coaches do, right? It's just like, this is, this is the first of several upcoming features where it's like, this is a big step in terms of how big the product is and, and how much it occupies in your stack, in your business. You know, that's, that's what we're going for here. Well, congrats on releasing it. That's exciting. I'm sure you now, you now have a lot to think about in terms of how to position and talk about it. Yeah. And also it's a, just a big relief for me, as I talked about the, the one that just came before this threads and now workflows, those were the two big like bottlenecks in our, in our dev cycles for the last two to three months, you know, and those are both now shipped. So it's like, now we've got like a, I'm thinking of it like, you know, those like hill charts in Basecamp that sort of track, like it's an uphill climb and then you sort of get to the top and then it's sort of downhill from there. I feel like we're near the, near the top of this mountain of if from here to the end to over the mountain is like, we've built the, the roadmap, the vision, and we, we've fully launched everything that we're going to do. I would say we're about halfway or maybe a little bit more than halfway and everything else that we're going to build to complete this vision there's still a lot, but I think the hardest things are behind us. So everything else is going to be sort of downhill. It's not necessarily going to be fast, but it just seems like it's going to be smoother from here on out. Okay, know? good. Uh, yeah, it's a good analogy there. Let me ask you to put on your product manager hat for a sec. So the concepts inside of that set of features that you just talked about are familiar with apps, right? Triggers and workflows and if this, then that. So when you approach that, of course, you have to apply those concepts to your specific product and audience and point of view. But when when you do that, are you going blank slate, take a piece of paper, first principles approach? Or are you saying, let me look at others that do it well. Let me look at some competitors. Let me look at other apps that I know have similar concepts but are not in the same space. This set of features, I did start to mock up in Figma before I got into the browser. That's where the initial sketching and and layout ideas took place. And then it got much more refined and adjusted once we were in, in the browser. So workflows, let's talk about that. Th that one, there are some patterns in the UI that follow pretty standard conventions. So our workflows are, it's not like a visual canvas builder, you know, if you will, but it's more of a linear workflow, which a lot of apps have. So somewhat similar to Zapier, Zapier is like linear top to bottom layout or, but it's also very similar to any app that has like an activity feed with like a, a line down the left side and circles to indicate each event in this activity feed. That's a common design of, of a workflow, right? And then you click into it and then you have, you know, the editing panels for each step in the workflow. That was a little bit more custom because we have different, you know, different ins and outs of, of how those things work. Actually, the more difficult thing that took me a lot more time to 
conceptualize and design was the other thing that we did here was we built logs. So you can look at any workflow and see all the logs in the history of how many times that workflow has run or when it will run. Because I feel like that that's one of the areas that a lot of these apps either don't even offer or they do a really poor job. And it's really, really frustrating when you're dealing with something like workflows, which you're sort of depending on and you're and you're putting a lot of trust in a workflow. Like, you know, but like this is one of my big frustrations with a lot of, you know, email marketing tools that have workflow stuff built into them. Like I'm putting a lot of trust in this thing to say like, you are going to email my client five days from now, but only if these conditions are true, right? Like, is that, is that really going to happen? You're going to make me look bad basically. Or they're, otherwise you're going to make me look bad, right? Or you're going to post this message in, into the zip message conversation, but only under these conditions and at this time, or like it actually is going to post it and, it, and you're not going to miss it, right? Or backwards auditing, like did that thing send, did that thing post and when did it post and, and what triggered it? Or if something was skipped, why was it skipped? Answers to all those questions are actually built into our interface. And so we have like this section where you can just click on logs and it's sort of like a list of all the runnings of a workflow. And then you open up each one, you can see each each step. So it it took a long time to hash out. So basically I do all that interface stuff. And then I worked with one of my developers to wire up the back end. But this, one, this was one of those features that we more or less built it in in about a month. And then we ran into some technical walls and I went in and I sort of rebuilt a lot of the, the logic. And then and then we came back in and spent another few weeks testing it and refining it and getting it right. You know. So you were comfortable taking the risk of of overbuilding because you, you wanted to inject your opinion into it around the logs and history. Yeah. And I feature. mean there's certain things about this type of feature because the the other thing that guided my like designing this was pretty early on. I started thinking about like, okay, when, when we eventually launch this feature, I need to be able to go to the market and say, this is what you can build with this. And I, I literally had that concept in my mind of like, if I'm going to build an interactive course with this, or if I'm going to build an, an interview with this, or if I'm going to build one of those reminder emails to my client, I actually started to draft out like what a tutorial for one of those use cases would be, and then sort of work backwards from there. Like, okay, we would need to have this functionality in order for that to work. And that's what dictated what we built. It's such a big feature that like, it's, we can't just MVP it. Like we sort of had to build mostly all the things. There's probably more stuff that we can build on top of this later, but it's the key pieces are there now. I, I like that concept. I do that without realizing that I'm doing it, but as we're thinking about a feature and talking about the small decisions around a feature, in my mind, I am visualizing how we talk about the feature in our marketing and what I want to be able to say. Yes. So it's like, no, it's the, the story will hit harder if we can say this thing, which goes beyond like the basic feature set. And that was actually a really helpful step in this process, thinking back on it now. So like I had the basic concept for how the the UI should work and we started building it and it was only like a, a couple of weeks in that I, that I did that exercise of starting to draft a use case tutorial for like a future use case. And then I was like, oh, we're missing a couple of key features. Otherwise this tutorial is not going to work. That definitely informed the direction. The other one that came before this was threads. And 
you know, there are definitely conventions that we looked at, like my developers and I like, so think of threads in Slack. Like we were looking at that, that that's a known convention, like seeing the thread button on the bottom right corner of the chat. We don't do the thing in Slack where it's sort of like an overlay on the right side of the page. Don't like that. But then with threads, I wanted to make it a little bit more flexible than most. So it's like we follow the convention first. Like it it looks and functions the way you would expect. But one of the things that we did was make it easy to move messages around. You can you can reorder them. You can pull a message out of a thread and into the top. You can move a, a message from one thread into a different thread. So this was this one was designed like first just solve the problem of like being able to have threaded comments in a conversation. That's the basic, but we're building into a bigger feature in the future. So these threads will also be used to like structure a course, to make a whole module in a course be a thread, to be able to rearrange those, those messages, turn a whole thread of messages into a template, which is something we're building right now. A lot of this stuff is like, how is this going to adapt as we ship the next two, three, four features, you know? Mm -hmm. Hence that a lot of uphill climbing before you can reuse a lot of these foundational things that you're building. In. Yeah, exactly. That, that exactly. So now it's like we have these things in there. So everything else is relatively easy to build. Yeah. Cool. On my side of things, you know, I think the, the next topic for, for me to talk about very exciting annual budget process. So the, the TLDR is that I, I feel like I was, wrong in my assumptions around this process. So, so every year, you know, we have a board of directors. I need to submit and get approval for a budget. And that includes projections with expense projections. So like what's going to happen financially over the next year. And then I need to get that approved by the board. So I've never done that before. At Carthook, we never had a board. Uh, I was just the only person on the board there, you know, at the corporate level. And so I never had to get anything approved or whatever. And then after the seed round, there was still no board and it was all up to me. Like I, I have projections and I look at that with the leadership team, right? Myself and Rock and Jess, and it helps whenever we look at it, we get, we get value from looking at the numbers, but this felt like a little different because it had, it had some added weight and stress to it. Yeah, because you talked about this before. I don't think it was a budget process. It was like maybe a board meeting and like yeah. deck and like slides and all that, right? So okay, so now we we have a board meeting coming up. It's actually next week, and I need to like go through the budget. Okay, so I went into it a little annoyed. Like I got to go take a lot of my time and focus on this thing, and it's going to be a snapshot in time full of assumptions. And then I'm going to go operate the business how I think the business should be operating. I'm not going to go use this document every day and look at it. Am I doing the right thing? So I was a not dismissive. It was just kind of like, a okay, fine. This is like a chore I, I need to, to do. But what happens, and I think it happens to all of us, if you hang out with an Excel sheet and you swim around some numbers for a while, eventually those numbers start talking to you and they start revealing things to you some things you like and some things you don't like, but it becomes more undeniable when you're looking at the numbers and you have control of it and you're tweaking things and you're kind of, you know, what happens if this happens in the next Especially when the then, numbers are, are a projection, like right. <laughs> versions of the future. 
Yes, yes. Now, the, the, the stress, I think the part that I get like a little negative about is that you submit this to the board and then you're going to review it every quarter. And then at the end of the year, you're going to be judged on how you did. I'm on the board of a company now. It's a direct-to-consumer company. And the CEO there is fantastic with numbers. And we go, we go over his budget and he is remarkably close to his estimates. It's very impressive. It's within a few percentage points. But the business has been around for years and does significant revenue and they kind of know what their business is. And I always look at them like, we're so early stage. Like, what, like don't. Yeah, you got to be able to move fast and change plans. And yes, you know. like we're looking for product market fit. I like to take calculated risks, right? All of us are like, what are our resources? What do I play it safe with? And where do I put, where do I take risks? What are the implications of like, okay, you put this budget together. What if the priorities completely change by quarter two? That's right. Okay. So to that end, I had the same, right? I'm, I'm in private. I'm in, I'm in my room here looking at this budget. In the back of my mind, I'm saying, what are the repercussions? So I email our lawyer and I go, hey, Eric, let me understand all these documents that I signed. What's in there? What happens if I'm not good at projecting and I don't hit numbers or we come in under over like, what is this? What does this mean? So he helped me understand that Everyone does this. Everyone has a hard time doing it. Yes, you are judged on it, but it's not like it's not like you're going to get fired if you don't hit the numbers, right? It's not like a public company or a late stage company that's like, you know. So it took the stress off for the most part. And so I just want to talk about what this thing looks like because I think it's helpful. Uh, another one of my friends asked what goes into it. So let me just run down what this Excel sheet, it's a Google sheet, but what this sheet looks like, Okay. So at the top, this is, this is great radio. Just describing a spreadsheet. Right there. <laughs> Love it. Look for this audience. People, people are going to like it. All right. Yeah, I know. Okay. So at the very top, I have revenue projections and underneath the revenue projections, I have the inputs of the revenue projections, the number of customers, the growth rate from one month to the next, the average revenue per customer. For us, it's average GMV, and then that gets applied in average transaction fee. What's funny is I actually, I literally have the same spreadsheet, and it's an open tab on my browser right there now. There you go. Like I, uh, I was literally just playing with mine today. Okay, so I- The 12-month projection, you plug yeah. in the metrics, yeah. Okay, cool. So look, a, a lot of people right, kind of have this, and I've always had it. It was the first time I had to basically publish it and give it to someone else. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and that's that's yeah, really mine, the only like difference. mine. I just showed to my wife and a couple of mastermind buddies, and that's it. <laughs> good, good for you showing your wife. <laughs> okay. So once I have revenue and the inputs that go into it, including churn and so on, then below that I have really what I have is our accounting software and all of those expense categories brought over. And then right below that, I have EBITDA. And there's actually a new row in there that I, I think is worth taking a very quick detour. Interest rates being as high as they are, all of a sudden, the interest you can earn on savings is significant. I happen to not be like a decamillionaire, like liquid in cash, so I don't care personally to the same degree. You know, I did move some money to Wealthfront. I'm making a few bucks there. But... The venture money is a different ballgame. If you take 4% and you, you, you put 10 million bucks in an account, that's 400K a year. Divided by 12 months, you're talking $30,000 plus a month. 
So a lot of these venture companies, ourselves included, all of a sudden have a very interesting new revenue flow. Seriously? Yes, <laughs> that's right. What I did not expect to add into this projection and what has improved the picture significantly. Is this a common move with funded companies? Absolutely. Okay. No, no, I didn't really know or think about it or care, but now I do, right? So we brought in right a significant amount of money and all of a sudden it's my responsibility to take care of it. So my first approach is, well, safety. I'm not taking any risk with that. No one's paying me to invest it. They're paying me to keep track of it and spend it responsibly. But if you then look at a 4% rate and you look over at Mercury, right? I'm sitting in Chase right now earning 0.01%. And I look over at Mercury and it's 4.1%. So over the last two weeks, I'm like, hey, I'm like a financial wizard. I'm just moving money from one place to another. And all of a sudden we have this new line item of real significant revenue that helps with our day-to-day uh, -day operations. So that's something that I did not expect to have inside this budget, but, but, but now we do. Super interesting. I use Mercury yeah. and I haven't even like thought about that <laughs> item. It's not, it's, it's obviously much, uh, not, not the, the numbers that you're dealing with here, but yeah. But still it's, it's so still, it's, it's, it's not relevant, relevant right? It, yeah. Exactly right. So, okay. So now that I have revenue, then I have all the expenses. I have total operating expenses. I have EBITDA. Then I have this interest line item, which everyone's very happy about. And then below that I have cash flow implications. I have a starting bank balance. I have a almost like a cash basis profit slash loss, which also takes into account the interest revenue. And then I have an ending bank balance. And so I have that for every month. And I can look at what happens not only to revenue based on growth and churn rates and all that stuff, but most importantly, what happens to cash. And now I feel equipped to understand how much risk I should take and when I should take it and what the limits of that risk should be. Does this exercise like in your current scenario doing these board meetings, like do you feel like it makes you more aggressive or more risk averse or, or what? That's a good question because that's really what you're being forced to confront. I would say going in before starting the process, I felt more aggressive. I basically said, look, you know, our competitors are struggling. Our product is good. I don't know if you remember at Cardhook, when we launched the checkout product, the churn was out of control. It was eight out of 10 merchants that started using it would leave within 30 days. It, it was a, a mess. We finally got it under control when we launched version two and all that stuff. And that's when it got better. But Rally's not starting off that way at all. No one leaves. Everyone's like, well, I'm getting a better conversion rate. I'm not leaving. So that part of it feels amazing. So I just felt generally aggressive. Then I went into the numbers and it spooked me. And I said, whoa, hold on a second. Hold on a second. This is like a game of survival. We don't want to go too aggressive this year if I'm thinking in a multi-year context. Then like that deeper level of the numbers are starting to talk to you version of things, I started to really understand that we actually can be aggressive because being less aggressive didn't give us much benefit. Because if, you, if you're going to have to cut expenses and what basically means cut team, then you're going to have to do it. And so when I looked at what happens 12 months from today in making an adjustment like that, and then I look at making the adjustment, call it six months from today, like reducing expenses significantly, like a lot of other companies are doing. What I saw was that the benefit we would get from it 
like the extension of runway, right? Like if we do it in six months, that means we have this much runway. And if we do it in 12 months, then we have X. The benefit was so negligible. It was like two months difference. It was like, and, and then it, that's when it kind of became clear. Then, like, then it's oh. like, yeah, then it's like a risk to be overly, uh, to, to just not being, not being aggressive that's enough. Right. Right? I've done the same exercise with my, projection spreadsheet a couple of times now in the last few weeks. And actually I'm, I'm looking at it again today. I think that my mindset when it comes to looking at this sheet and looking at the next 12 months, it has sort of evolved. Like, whereas when I was younger in my career, I probably would have been spooked a lot, a lot more easily about like, like, Oh, like what if these numbers don't trend the way that I hope they do? Or what if cash gets tight, then, then I'm going to like rapidly, change strategies, which might fuck up the business. Right. But now I just have this attitude, like, let me put it this way. We have a strategy that we're going to execute no matter what, but I, I need to see what that looks like in a spreadsheet. <laughs> yeah. And, and how much you can help that strategy along by throwing money at certain problems and experimenting. Yeah. Or like, just like, I know we are going to be spending on these things this year. I'm not going to not spend on those things. They're, they're strategic decisions on like this marketing channel or that marketing channel. Like those are separate dis strategic discussions. Those to me are not spreadsheet discussions. <laughs> those are like, they cost what they cost. And if that's the thing that has the, the highest likelihood of success, we're going to spend on it. The question then is like, how do I manage cash flow and runway? And what are the implications if we run out of runway? Like that's what I look at. But if we run out of runway, it's because the strategies didn't work the way that, that they expected to, to work. And I don't know how, how else to explain it, but it's, I, I don't look at it like, oh, we're going to tighten up or loosen up based on these projections. I just look at the next 12 months. It, it helped me gain comfort in just sticking to the plan and just seeing it and really acknowledging what the reality would, would look like in scenario A or scenario B. I think I talked about that a few episodes mm -hmm. ago. A lot of what I get from it, like from the emotion, is I just wish we had more money. I just want more money. I just want to be more aggressive. You know, that's that's like when I look at it and I think about the conversations I had with investors and the term sheets and all this other stuff. It's like, like I, know, I don't think really about it that way. And you, you have way more money than we do in our in our bank account. <laughs> it's but like it's all relative. That that's right. That's right. The thing that I wish that we have is. I think that we're pretty fast in moving, but I wish I had more speed to to know what's what sooner rather than later. Because right now I feel like I don't know. It takes you months to find out. I feel pretty confident in the in the direction that we're going and all the research that I've done uh, to confirm this direction, but I don't know what's what yet. I don't know what you know the 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 metric cells in the spreadsheet, like what the conversion rate is going to be and what the ARPU is going to turn out to be six, twelve months from now after we change prices and after this and that changes. And like I have these plans in place, the strategy in place that you know, but that's the plan. I don't know what reality will look like yet. And and I don't know that that's even something that money can buy. Like it's still just time. Uh, yeah. Agree, but there there is a certain approach to the planning for it and how optimistic or pessimistic you are. When you look at those revenue projections, like I just I just flip flopped because when you're fundraising, the incentives to be optimistic and then like triple it because whatever whatever 
optimism you think you're applying to your numbers, there are other people out there that are going so far into absurdity around their optimistic projections that if you keep it reasonable, you look bad. Like I have seen other decks of other companies in our space at similar stages, and it's so so beyond absurdity that it shocked me into thinking like, oh my God, I, I cannot be reasonable. But what, okay, so what is the strategy with approaching it that way? Like why why would you make- It's YOLO. It's just fuck it, YOLO. Just tell them we're going to be billionaires. Don't worry about it. Is it literally for raising and it's not- yeah, Just raising and valuation and FOMO and word of mouth. And it's not like sales, like like market- size potential conversion like we like no it's you would be in shock to see some of the stuff people do it shocks me and and i'm i'm getting used to it it's still like i mean <laughs> that's but is, i mean like what like but, I, but still like <laughs> at the end of the day like i i get that it's a different game than the vc game but like at the end of the day we're still building a business that needs sales and to make projections that are so wildly beyond what what could possibly really happen i don't see the strategic value in that other than raising more money but like it's it's only communication it is it is literally signaling to the investor that you are thinking gigantic that you want to own the market it's almost like a checkbox on like yes He's they are thinking absurdly yeah. <laughs> absurdly yes like i have seen like we have a million people now, and next year it'll be 1.25, and within five years it'll be 65 million people. Like that. And you're like, huh, what, hold on. Wait, what, <laughs> yes. what happened there? Yes. So, so that's when you're fundraising, and now all of a sudden we're getting something approved by the board. The incentive is to be like, oh, no, 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 we're not going to go that fast. Don't worry about it. <laughs> because the, you want to beat it. Okay, so then in, in, these, in these conversations, in these pitch decks, in, 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 you know, you're making the rounds like – is there any conversation around like, okay, so what happens between year two and year three to justify going from 10 million to 65 million? Like what reality changes? Is it just the hunch on the, on the market opportunity to say yes, like- Yes, it's the, so easy. Just make know, it up. Just is it make like, it up. Is it like, oh, well, that's when the world is going to change and yes, we're going to be that's there. when everyone yeah. catches up to our beautiful vision and realizes right. that okay. we're right all along. Yes. Got it. So it's like so easy to just <laughs> talk through it. It's really tough because because sometimes you talk to investors and they point to your deck and they're just like, well, you know, give us like detail on this. And we're like, guys, it's a number on a page. <laughs> what, yeah. What, why are we why are we pretending? What are we what are we talking about here? Right. Um, so but so now it's flipped, though, when you're submitting something to the board, you you don't want to overdo the optimism because 12 months you might look bad. And really what you want to do it right. The incentive is to thread the needle where it's just optimistic enough that it looks like you're not going to crash and burn and your company's dead, but just so because then you can beat it and look like a hero and you beat projections. So it's it's a bit of a, a bit of a dance, but the value still came out of it even if there are political machinations attached. Yeah. Yep. Hmm. Well, that was that was a good topic. <laughs> See, we made it interesting. Yeah. <laughs> All right, what else we got? We did put it out on Twitter today. I think there's a couple yeah. things. There's a few things on sales there that I could talk about what we're dealing with right now and then everyone's dealing with it. Everyone's trying to grow and, and get leads. And so let, let me throw this at you and then we can kind of 
talk about it in the context of some of these Twitter threat, uh, Twitter responses that are like, well, where are you getting leads? What are you doing for sales? What's working in B2B? So right now we have room for one more hire. Like we are at the very tail end of our post funding hiring spree. Okay. We have one more and that role is to help fill the pipeline. So top of the funnel, get people schedule demos. In my so mind, have, that is the hardest question mark to fill. Okay, so I- And we, I we've you. talked about this, right? Like- Yes, it's-, it's it, the, Sales it's process the, is easy, like demos, onboardings. Okay, it's not easy, but like you could just map out the process. Right. And you show the products, you get better at it, yes. Get okay. strangers to come to your website and click a button and sign up. You know, that's product, that's product market <laughs> yes. fit. And you gotta, yeah. you gotta okay. sort of get the so, so our debate internally, and my guess is in some ways, this is the debate that everyone's having. So when we do outbound- it works. We, we send emails, we make phone calls, people do demos and they sign up. If I look at our existing base of customers right now, a good portion, I'm going to say 50% came from outbound. And so it works. Okay. So like, let's just, let's just hold that assumption off to the side for a second. Outbound works. Now, do we hire someone to continue doing more outbound or do we go toward a healthier version of sales, which is partnerships that generate inbound referrals? Now, the difference between the two. Why is it an or? That's my first Okay, question. so it's or only to a degree. You're right. It's not like we're not going to do outbound, right? But it's like, where are you going to put, you know, a brain, a, a, a well-paid experienced thinking person that's going to be creative, where do you want them to focus, you know, every day? We're still going to do outbound. We're still going to send emails no, no matter what. It's like, what type of pipeline do you want? What type of people do you want in your pipeline? Because it is a very different type of experience when you reach out and basically convince someone to come check out your stuff. Basically, you know, come to our stall. Let us show you what we have. That person in the pipeline views your company and your product in a very different way than someone that their agency came to them and were like, I met this new company. You got to check this thing out. Here's what it does. And they say, I want an intro. And they say, cool. And then they're in their pipeline and they're like, I heard your stuff is awesome. I want to see it. Those are, those are one entry into the CRM, but completely different experience. So I'm not looking for entries into the CRM. I'm looking for success. I'm looking for happy, paying customers that grow and love us and talk about us. I'm very hesitant to keep focusing on outbound, even though it works, but it fills the CRM with entries and people that are not as warm. Yeah. No, I mean, it, it makes logical sense, right? Like it's cold outreach, literally cold, which means like, you are interrupting them and it's, and I've done cold as well. We, we've been doing it, but it's interruptive, right? So you are basing on hope on a few things, right? Number one, that they are even receptive. There are, there's a lot of people, probably myself included, who just automatically delete cold outreach, no matter what it is. Then there's a smaller subset who are maybe receptive. Obviously that comes down to the targeting and everything. But then you're, you're also hoping on the timing. Like they happen to feel that pain when you reach out to them and it's, it's like, oh, it's a coincidence. Oh, it's a good thing you reached out to me because I've been wanting a, a solution like that. That feels like you're hoping for luck, 
right? You know, the other side of the equation, inbound, and this really speaks more to product market fit, you know, that's why that's so important in my mind. Like, yeah, you can do outbound and I I honestly hate this term demand generation. Like, like we can just press a button and, and generate demand. Like what we really want and what I think most successful products have is product market fit, which means there is some- The market's coming to you. There's, there's market coming to you. I, whether that's SEO or some other version of inbound traffic, word of mouth, uh, in certain communities, certain markets, but a lot of SEO is it, it plays into it, or like app store optimization stuff like that. Like people are searching for solutions somewhere because there is a pain that exists, and that's that's product. You know, so like the perfect mix is having a really strong product market fit where you know people are going to just come and find you, and then and then try to amplify that with more outbound and more branding and stuff like that. Right. Ideally, they've heard of you. I think it matters the nature of your product. So, for example, the nature of your product has a pretty significant amount of search and a significant number of people that can potentially benefit from it. Our product, people don't know that this type of a product exists because they just assume, well, I got to use the checkout that my platform gives me. So there is a bit of a like disruptive pattern, which does lend itself to outbound. Like, hey, hold on. You need to kind of like change your assumptions here. Right, like this is a thing that you should know about. Yeah. Yes, that's definitely improved significantly over the last 18 months between Fast and Bolt. Absolutely. I so guess you could like that. align your outbound with activity. Like you, I'm sure you guys are already doing stuff like this where like, you know, someone is in the process of starting up a new store, you know that's the perfect moment to, to reach. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of our outbound is triggered from tracked events on the web. So if someone creates a new big commerce store, they're going to get an email from us, that, that type of thing. Or if we see them switch certain technologies, yep, that helps. So if, when you look at your effort in changing the product, do you see big changes in the way you're going to sell or are you, are you looking more toward an inbound SEO driven? Like how do you we, think we do it? a bit of outbound and it's like, it's like every time I think about turning it off, I get a couple new leads from it. I'm like, Oh shit. All right. We'll just leave it on. I love it. <laughs> what do you mean by outbound? Just emails? Just email. Okay. Uh, well, we do a combo of email plus zip message. So okay. um, nice. it's been like, you know, emailing to highly, likely candidates who are perfect fits for us. And then usually the ask is, can I show you our product? Uh, literally using a, a I'll, I'll record a video for you, but really it's a template video that I recorded once months ago. And I show them like, I'm showing you our product and this, you're looking at it is our product, right? That's actually worked fairly well. I, I wouldn't say fairly well. Like we, we get a, a small handful of leads a month from that. The vast majority of our leads are definitely coming from Google. I can track that. And we do have a portion that are viral. We see a, a, a bit of that too. So, And then we also have a chunk of just people talking about us and linking to us, referring people to us. So it's sort of a mix, but far and away, Google is still the top and we're working on that more. Yeah, to answer your question going forward, we are working on a new website. And one change that's going to happen on this website is 
the call to action, we're going to have two, at least to start off, we're going to have two, right? Right now, the only call to action is sign up for a free account. It's going to become, you can sign up for an account or you can get a demo. So we're going to introduce a, a demo process, a, a call. I'll be salesperson number one for probably the foreseeable future. And we're going to do that, you know, get into the demos thing, because I think our product is evolving into a bigger, more significant product, which means it's a bigger buying decision. It's going to, it, it is definitely going to, like one of my expectations with this is it's going to slow down the sales process for, for a single person. Like a single lead is going to take a slower time to evaluate us and demo us. And then even the implementation and onboarding is going to have more steps than we've had before. You know, you're going closer to the foundation of someone's business. Yeah. They're, yeah. They're really building a lot on top of your platform. And I'm actually excited about that. Like looking back on the first year, you know, when I initially started zip message, one of the things I was super psyched about was how fast it is for a, for a lead to find us on, on, the, on our website, sign up and actually just start messaging someone right away, getting value. And people still experience that today and we get pretty quick conversions that way, but I'm actually excited to get back into the sales demo game. You know, I, I had it with audience stuff, I had it with process kit and, and I haven't had it really at all, except for like talking to customers and doing research and doing some support, but we haven't had a formal like, sign up for a demo, talk to me and, and really evaluate the tool. We haven't had that. And, and then onboarding. And, and so like, I'm, I'm psyched to sort of build that out this year for two reasons. One is it will just get me more in touch with customers, especially customers who are in the market right now, like shopping for a tool like ours. Like I haven't had too much interaction with those people who are shopping right now. A, a lot of my customer interviews that I've done are, were with existing customers or just other people that I met, but introducing the demo process. And I, and this is one of the, I don't have that many like blanket recommendations for new SaaS startups, but one is like when you're brand new and you have zero customers, force them to a demo process because it forces you to talk to customers, but it's even better because you're talking to customers who are interested right now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I agree with that. I can't imagine taking a fully hands-off approach, but I mean, some people are, are, are good at it. I, I hope that that goes along with a higher price point with yeah. what you're yeah. doing. I mean, yeah. new prices are coming later this year and then- Right, but it makes sense. Yeah, and, and I, could, I could even see maybe later in the year we would introduce an actual paid onboarding service or mm -hmm. migration service. If you have a lot of content hosted somewhere else, bring it over here. We'll, we'll help you out with that. You know, setting up those workflows I talked about, like help, help with that. Like that could all be built into it. Yeah. I like to think of this as like flying closer to the sun. Like you, like you're just moving into hotter territory for better and worse. It's more critical. There's more stress, but the pricing is higher. The churn is lower. The Onboarding takes more time. It's all this mixture of things that are better and more difficult at the same time. We we did it like very literally at Cardhook because we used to just be we used to just take the email from the checkout page, and then we became the checkout page, right? So we were like, oh, we can add value here, but if we really want to add value, we got to go all the way in. And in some ways, right, you're going from messaging into like, let me power your your business. And yeah. all the good and bad that goes with it. Yep. 
I mean, it's a lot of big changes coming and a lot of stuff I haven't even talked about publicly yet, but yeah, I'm pretty psyched. And I'm also a little frustrated that it took us like two years to, <laughs> to, to get to where we are now, but it yeah, my, I think we're kind of running out of time, but the, the last point I had to talk about was figuring out what business you're actually in. And we're, I guess, about two years-ish. I don't like to think of it as that long, but something like that. And it does feel like I have a better understanding of the business that we're in now. Significantly yeah. better than, than when we started. And it sounds very similar for you. Yep. 100%. Yeah. I forgot if I talked about this earlier, but like I could kick myself for not structuring the strategy from day one now, but like, but I also believe that I wouldn't have figured it out had I not had a product in the market and customers to talk to, to point me in this direction, you know? Yeah. And hopefully there's the payoff there. All right, dude. Well, it's Friday afternoon. I believe it's six degrees out. Yeah, so I'm it's super cold right, over here too. <laughs> I'm going to stay right in my house. It's my wife's birthday this weekend, so I got some pressure. Yeah. Have, have a good time. Go out. Yeah. Awesome, man. Yeah. Thanks for listening. All right. Later, folks. See you.